Thank you uh, for your worship this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, let's open up to Matthew's Gospel, and we will continue along in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Before I get rolling with it too quickly, I want to recommend something to you. One of my jobs as one of your elders is uh, to lead you to the quiet, still waters, the greener pastures, and especially when it comes to what books to read and what books not to read. Uh, every Monday morning, uh, I begin a, a weekly process of uh, not just reading scripture, but trying to have a conversation with other scholars and authors uh, to listen to what it is that they're saying. I go through about 25 books um, every week that deal with the passage that we're wrestling with. One of the ones that I found the most helpful that I want to recommend to you as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is this little book, uh, kind of a big book, by a guy named D.A. Carson. He's one of the most notable New Testament scholars in North America. Uh, and he has written a sort of a companion study written towards more lay people. It doesn't get lost in a lot of Greek and get too technical at times, uh, but it's a theological study, uh, and I'm, I've drawn from it uh, several times. It's just called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and his confrontation uh, with the world. So if you're looking for something to supplement, uh, that would be a good one to, to pick up and, uh, and to go from there. You know, uh, yesterday we celebrated, uh, not celebrated, but remembered rather, the events that transpired uh, over 20 years ago at uh, the World Trade Center in New York City. Um, I, had, uh, I had just finished, I, I played soccer in college and I was a sophomore at the time. We had just finished early morning workouts. I'd headed back up to the dorm. I was in the shower at about uh, 8.50 and my roommate came in and he said, you're not gonna believe this, you need to come and, and watch the TV. And so I get out and I go and we were just glued and enamored to the television set for the next hour and a half to two hours. Over the past week, uh, a lot of documentaries have been released. Uh, there's a tremendous one on, on Netflix that covers like the lead up to and then the aftermath of it. Highly recommend it. Um, Apple TV's come out with, a, with one of their own that, that's not too bad either. But recently, uh, Haley and I discovered uh, uh, one that's put out by National Geographic. They're showing it on, on Hulu, which is where we, we found it. And I think that it's the most compelling. And here's why. When those two planes flew into those two towers. And I remember watching that as a sophomore in college. And, and I remember just thinking about all the things that were going on in the lobby and below and what those people must be thinking. And so what National Geographic did that makes it very compelling is they start with a group of firefighters that morning on the day of. They get called to a gas leak three blocks away and they're on duty doing their thing. And then all of a sudden about 840-ish, the first plane flies in and it leads and follows them into the lobby of the World Trade Centers. And it's basically their perspective in the first episode. Gut-wrenching. Hard to watch. There were moments in watching that first episode where I began to remember and have some of the same feelings and emotions that I had the first time that I watched this live. And, and I remember this point in watching it in college and, and you start to see what you think is shrapnel falling off of the building a hundred stories down only to later realize it was people they made a choice to rather not be burned to death, but rather to leap to their death. And then it shows the firefighters at one point hearing and, and seeing these, these bodies jump off. And then it deals with this uh, battalion commander as he sends his men up to 70 flight of, of, of stairs to where the fire had begun, knowing that he was ultimately sending them to their death. In that group of firemen with this battalion chief was his younger brother of three years whom he sent up to save lives and, and he never saw him again. And these men that, that willingly walk into the midst of fire and, and smoke 
ultimately knowing, saying to each other that, that we're probably not going to make it out of this, doing, doing good works and good deeds, showing honor, showing courage, fulfilling their duty, their obligation. We know last week we, we talked about Jesus talking about the Beatitudes and blessing his people and putting us in, in what we call just a rhythm of being blessed and understanding that God has blessed us so that we can go be a blessing to other people. And he makes this statement that we hinted at last week and we talked about very briefly the latter half after the Beatitudes. And he says, you do all of these things so that people will see your good deeds and they'll glorify our Father in heaven. And I am more convinced today than I was last week and even the week before that God blesses his people with the sole purpose of them going out and then being a blessing to other people. And going and and running into the fire and, and running into the smoke, spiritually speaking. And Jesus does this in a way that follows up after the Beatitudes where he says and puts them in a rhythm of being blessed and being a happy people, that that's an okay translation for that word. And then he, we read this last week, but we're going to come back to it today because I think it has some larger implications for the church today. And so if you would look with me at verse 13, and let's just read this first verse. And he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There's a couple of things that Jesus is doing in this beginning verse that we didn't talk about last week. One of the first things I want you to notice is him using the word you just right off in the beginning. Speaking in second person plural, we, we are instantly confronted with this reality that here we have Jesus looking back into the New and the Old Testament who is called the bright morning star. He's the light of the world. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He is all these things, yet in this moment, he looks directly at his people and he says, you are the salt. He goes on in just a few moments and he says, and you also are the light. And what he's doing in that moment is he is putting the onus on his people, saying we have a responsibility, that we can trust in the sovereignty of God, but recognize there's a place and a position that God wants us to occupy as his blessed people, chosen, called out for good works that he has prepared for us in advance. We have been blessed so that we would be a blessing to other people. And to explain it to us, he says, you're salt. And we talked a little bit about salt last week and that one of the primary means of interpretation of this passage is that salt has this way of preventing decay as things are dying. And salt has a way of making things last a little bit longer, a preservative to make whatever item or whatever good it is that you've got in that moment to lengthen the life. But, but here's the thing about that understanding is that eventually, even though you can slow the decay and the rot, Eventually, everything decays and rots, even with salt. But I think what Jesus is doing here in this moment is he's talking not so much about a defensive posture to prevent moral decay and erosion, but rather he is speaking about a proactive place that we occupy, a rhythm that we run in on a daily basis that really has a little bit to do with preservation and preventing decay, but rather has more to do with savoring and adding a sense of of flavor. If we go back and we read these beatitudes 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, the mournful over sin, the meek and the hungry, the thirsty for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers of all the confines. What we find is, is that God puts us in a blessed state, not so we would live in that state away and in isolation from everybody else. But he says you're blessed so that you can go be a blessing. Your salt used to, to permeate used to pierce into the culture and to make it something better than what it was. It's not just a preservative. The French have a saying. They simply say, raison de true, which means in French that it is what it is in its essence. That something cannot cease to be what it is. It can change and it can morph. But here's the deal with salt. Salt can't stop being salt. It can become contaminated with, with sand and it can become contaminated with impurities and, and decay, but it's still going to be salt. But when you mix that salt in with other things, if it's not the right thing, then the salt loses not just its saltiness, it stays salty, but it becomes morally decayed. And how can then it then be restored is the question that Jesus asks. But you know, salt, not just being a preservative, it's meant to be a flavor enhancer. Scientists many years ago discovered that, listen, in our, in our tongues, we taste a lot of things. We taste sour, we taste sweet, we taste bitter, and we taste salty. And not too far long ago, a Japanese scientist discovered there was another area of taste on our tongues. And he called it the umami, U-M-A-M-I, which just means in English, savory. And he says, this, this element that exists on our tongues that we've identified, uh, and here's how salt works to, to bring about a savory taste. You see, you can put salt on meat or vegetables, and it will dissolve it, and it will draw out the, the water and the moisture that exists. And so when you make beef jerky or something like that, you dry out, and you, the goal is to bring the moisture out. Years ago, I had a, a big tree stump in my yard that I wanted to get rid of. I got tired of mowing around it, but I didn't want to rent a stump grinder and pay $300. And I was lamenting about this in church one day, and this uh, old gray guy with no hair that just walked and oozed wisdom, he said, listen, you know that you can get rid of that stump by just drilling some holes in it and pouring Epsom salt in it once a week for about two months. And he said, every day you go and every week you pour a little salt on that stump and what that salt will do is it will begin because stumps can live even if there's no tree trunk. They'll stay alive for a really long time and what that salt will do is it'll pour every bit of that moisture out of that tree and eventually that tree will rot and you can burn it and you can hit it with a sledgehammer and that stump will go away and sure enough, I listened to the old man with gray hair and little to no hair and that stump dissolved in about two months. Salt has a way of, of piercing certain things, but it also has a way of enhancing things. Growing up, I never understood why my grandmother, when cutting a watermelon, she would get a salt shaker out and she would sprinkle salt on that watermelon. And the reason why she did that was because a little bit of salt on the watermelon made the watermelon just a little bit sweeter. I never understood when I was a student minister and we'd go on trips and we stopped at Wendy's that my teenagers would go and they would order a chocolate frosty with the order of large french fries and then I would proceed to watch them take the french fry and dip it in the chocolate frosty. 
And I would think, are you out of your ever-loving mind? And they said, no, it tastes so much sweeter and so much better. And the reason why it did is because those fries had a little bit of salt on them. And so it makes that chocolate shake just a little bit sweeter. It's the enhancement that exists amongst that. It's the reason why if you go to the movies with me and we buy a, bo- a bag of popcorn, we're going to buy a, a box of Milk Duds or chocolate M&Ms. And we're just going to dump them in the popcorn. And we're going to mix it around with all the salt. And we're going to pull out those M&Ms as we're eating that popcorn. And those M&Ms are going to taste even sweeter than they would without the salt. It enhances things. It makes it more savory. I think this is one of the compelling arguments that we can make when it comes to the life of the believer. That things ought to be sweeter and things ought to be better when we are present. Listen to me, friend. Your neighborhoods that you live in, that God has called you to live at, your neighborhood ought to be better because you live there. You enhance it and you make it better. Our church ought to be better because you're here as a faithful follower of Jesus and you are here to, to make this a sweeter place and a sweeter time and to enhance it. It's better off now because you're here than when you weren't here. Your workplaces, your families, your homes, as we faithfully walk with Christ in the rhythm of understanding that we are blessed in Christ, things ought to be better. They ought to taste sweeter. But you know, if you put too much salt on something, you're what the Urban Dictionary will just call you as being salty. And you know what that means? If you don't know, what that means is is that if somebody says you're a little extra, you're a little salty today, what they're saying is you're, you're a little fired up maybe for all the wrong reasons. You're a little agitated. You're a little bitter. You seem really angry over something that doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. They're pretty salty over there. And can I tell you that within our culture and within our world, we don't need any more extra salty Christians. Not on social media, not in churches. One of the things that, that social media has done for us is it has allowed us to be in a rhythm of being extra salty. Why? Because though we put a name to our, our handle, whatever that is, whoever it is that we're accusing or going after, we don't have to say it to their face. And we can say it from a distance. And I think a good rule of thumb with many of that is if you wouldn't say it to their face, why would you passive aggressively say it to them through means of Twitter or Facebook? The world doesn't need any more extra salty Christians. You can get on social media and discover pretty quick we are pretty salty in a, in a lot of wrong ways. And the travesty of that is this, no pun intended just there, but the travesty is that the world is watching and they see that. And they put their hands up and say, I don't want anything to do with it then. It's not making things better. It's not making things right. In so many ways, that extra bit of salt, it makes it, it, makes it bitter. It doesn't preserve. It, it actually speeds up, in some cases, the, the decay of relationships, and, and it becomes harmful. Jesus goes on in verse 14, and he says, you are the light of the world. 
uses that second person plural again, you are that light. Even though Jesus claims to be the light, why would he say something like this? This doesn't make a lot of sense. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand. It's hard to understand this. Uh, and the only way that I know to illustrate it is if uh, there are certain places on campus, in particular this back stairwell down here. When I come in early on Sunday mornings, about 4 a.m. in the morning, there's no lights on in any of these places. And I walk down that back stairwell with no lights. It is pitch black. You cannot see your hand in front of you. Or if you go backpacking or you like to hunt and do primitive camping, one of my happy places is put me a, get up, I want to backpack, I'm going to walk off into the woods for five or six days with either by myself, I'm completely content with that, or one or two other buddies, and we're just going to walk in and then we're going to walk back out in four or five days. And you get under trees with canopies uh, deep in the forest and deep in certain places. And all of a sudden, you can't see anything. And pitch black is a real thing. There's no nightlight. There's no alarm clock next to you that's reflecting off light. You are in pitch black darkness. But even if you have just a little light, it makes all the difference in the world. And that little bitty light, understanding that rhythm that I'm running in, whose I am and what God has called me to be, that it makes a really big difference in the midst of really dark places. Why? Because the light that we give, the light that we shine off is the light that comes from Christ, the light of the world. And he says, therefore, shine your light. So that in the same way you shine it so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now I want to back out of this just for a moment. And this is why I came back to preach this again, even though we mentioned it briefly. As we've been looking at the, at the trees and I want to back out and look at the forest for just a moment. You see, Jesus gives us this posture and position of being blessed, not so that we would just be blessed here at 800 West Berry Street on Sunday mornings, but rather that we as a people would gather into his church as his church. We would hear his word, sing songs about him that reflect him rightly, and then with the sole purpose that God would send us out of this room and we would scatter to the uttermost parts of the world, back to our college dormitories, to seminaries, to fraternity houses and sorority houses, back to our neighborhoods, back to our places of work that God would send us out. Why? Because verse 16 says, so they can see your light. Because your light's not meant to be hidden. It's not meant to be put away, that, that it's meant to be seen. And it's meant to be demonstrated. When I meet with, with people, whether it's in, a, in the context of discipleship or sojourning with them, like one of my favorite things to do is I don't want to meet in my house. I don't want to meet in this church, though it's a beautiful church with fantastic buildings. I want to go meet at restaurants and in coffee shops, and I want us to talk about what our faith looks like aloud in the public sphere so they can hear about the redeeming work of Jesus in my life and in my church and what he's doing. It's not meant to be lived out just here in this room. And too many churches have missed that. Where the goal was all about how many can we get to come on Sunday mornings. Listen to me. We're grateful that you're here. We need this time to gather together. But the success or failure of our church moving forward is how many today leave this room on mission, understanding that they have been sent by God into the city of Fort Worth to do the good deeds and the works that our Father in heaven has prepared for us in advance. He sent us. And he says, go. 
and make disciples. And so one of the things, a couple of things that we need to understand is this. Number one, we must pursue Jesus into and out from worship. Worship is not just what happens here in this moment. But it's more about what happens outside of here. Worship has less to do with the style of music and what music it is and more about your lifestyle and how you're living and focusing on your intimacy with being with Jesus rather than doing things for Jesus. And I think a lot of churches of people that have been walking with God for a long time, particularly in traditional churches that have been around, we begin to mistake being with Jesus versus doing with Jesus. You can do things for Jesus while you are not with Jesus. Jesus. You can accomplish tasks for him and compete in programs and bring about programs all the while devoid of a relationship with him. The primary purpose of your life is focusing on your intimacy and your fellowship with him. He is the most important person. And we do that by studying his word and reading it, by, by praying, by journaling, by, by one anothering each other and coming alongside each other and making sure that we are focusing our worship, not just on what happens here, but what it looks like when we leave here. Number two is this, we must pursue Jesus into the world by living out our faith on our sleeves in the public spaces. TCU students, for you, it looked like sitting down and eating breakfast in the cafeteria, talking about your faith in Christ, not being weird, not being awkward, just talking about God's redemptive work in your life and like what he's been doing and, and talking to your friends about it, being intentional about having those conversations and letting people come by. And they're gonna like, what are, they, what are they talking about? And listen, if you can be somewhat normal and not strange and awkward with it, they're gonna like, hey, I, I kind of wanna be friends with y'all. What, what are y'all doing? We, we believe theologically that, that God has put some kind of void in every single person's heart and soul that makes them long for him. And many of them don't know who that God is and what they're longing for, but they're looking for something. And they're looking for people that, that are real and that, that are authentic about it and that talk about it in ways that, that are not strange and, and obscure and, and that necessarily every time make people uncomfortable. Just a normal dude, just a normal girl, living their faith out, being faithful, being obedient, pursuing it, living our faith on our sleeves in the public spaces. Number three, I think it's this, for some of you olders and, and those that are pursuing a calling, it's understanding that we must pursue Jesus into the world as sent people through the intersection of what we would just call faith and work. Here's the mistake that we often make. I called three of my pastor friends this past week and I said, hey, when was the last time you talked about work as vocation in front of your people? Not condemning, just curious. I don't know, I hadn't done that in a long time. I said, me either. And he said, what do you even mean by the intersection of faith and work? Here's what I mean by this is that we need to normalize a conversation around the reality that not everybody vocationally to be a preacher of the gospel is called to stand before a pulpit on Sunday mornings. But rather, what God is doing is he has called me and put a vocation on my life to go be a teacher and to use that, that ability to teach and to reach people with the gospel as my vocation, to be an attorney, 
to reach people as my vocation. This is my calling. God has given you a mind to to be a, a legal scholar, to use that for his purposes. God calls you to go into to banking or finance or whatever that is so that that is your vocation that he has called you to, to reach your, your office space or to reach your neighbors or to put you in places and in contact with people that a pastor would never come into contact with. That you can be far more effective in the gospel and your reward is so much greater than most preachers who stand because we have to be deliberately intentional about making sure that our pathways and the rhythms of our life intersect with people that are far from God. It becomes hard at times. Because a lot of times what you end up doing is you're, you're mending sheep that are hurt and wounded or you're breaking up sheep that are at each other and headbutting each other and kicking each other. They're making noises at each other. And you go and you have to tend to that. I think as Jesus sends us out and understanding that, that our vocation, whatever it is, he has called you, he's put you there, whether you still struggle with that or not, but see it as that. And how do I make the most of it in the midst of this? And, and what is it that God is calling me to do? The last thing that I want to say to us is if Jesus has really sent us on mission, to be on mission, then we must pursue Jesus into the world by pursuing mercy and justice. I heard somebody say not too long ago, If your pastor ever talks about justice, you just need to assume that he's a a liberal, progressive, woke guy. I started to tweet right at him. I wrote three tweets. I deleted every single one of them because the language was way too strong. I started to call him a couple of names, tell him how ignorant they were, how dumb and, and just ignorant they were on that. Listen to me right now. Justice in is in the Bible. It ought to be things that we advocate for and we speak up for. There are people in our city and in our state and in our country that that are marginalized, that are overlooked, that that have had different experiences than, than we do. And first and foremost, we seek to see them reconciled with the gospel of Jesus, but it doesn't mean we ignore every other need that they have and say, well, you've got Jesus. He'll just sort you out the rest of the way. It's why we support ladies like Becky Hyde and others. It's why we're going to introduce you to a group called Unbounded in a couple of months that deal with human trafficking because that's a justice issue. This past week, some of our staff were talking about a new album that had come out. And I'm not a, a hip-hop guy, never have been, although I have a pretty eclectic taste in music. Um, people ask me, Pastor, who's your favorite worship leader? Who's your favorite band? And I answer the same way every time. It's George Strait, always has been, always will be. God rest the king. He's the best worship leader of all time, okay? Now that that's settled, I listen to a lot of different kind of music. And they were talking about Kanye's new album, Donda. And uh, so yesterday I had some time, and so I listened to it probably three or four different times. And Kanye gets picked on a lot uh, for a lot of right reasons sometimes. And we think Kanye knows the Lord, but we don't know. Time will tell. The fruit will tell within the midst of that. But one of the ways in which Kanye is interesting, because he helps, I think, sometimes for the church to see what it is that culture is crying out for. And so all you have to do is go listen to some of the latest music that's out, and you'll see what is resonating in the hearts of our culture. 
And so I worked through his album, I think three times yesterday, listening to a variety of it. And I, I wouldn't call it a Christian album or a church album. It's got some colorful language in it uh, every once in a while, which is what you would expect with someone that, that just came to know the Lord fairly recently in the world and the circles that he travels in. But one of the things that, that struck me in the midst of, of that album was, was this constant theme of, of in these songs and throughout these songs of, of these artists crying out for justice and longing to see justice. In particular, one of the things that, that went over and over and over again was an idea of criminal justice reform and that our, our system is it's just messed up in, in certain ways. And, and you can go talk to attorneys and lawyers that have worked for district clerks and others, and they'll say it is pretty messed up. It's one of the best in the world, but it's, but it's not perfect. And, and so one of the things that he talks about, and he hits over and over and over again, is this cry. And listen, we, we want to partner with Justice Ministries. We want to be with Unbounded. We want to be with, with Becky in the Fort Worth Pregnancy Center. Those are, those are justice issues that we value. And guess what? The world values many of those same things. Not exactly like we do in every which way. But if we understand that we've been sent out into the world, blessed to be a blessing, then we must pursue Jesus into the world, pursuing mercy and justice. Jesus gave special attention, remarkably close attention, to the poor and to the weak, to the unserved, to the overlooked, those living in the margins of culture and in society. And we as a church are called to dedicate our time, energy into those things. And we, we do a pretty good job of that, but not good enough yet. Anthony Galata, who, who serves over our community, uh, Compassion Mercy Ministries, does a tremendous job with Ben Bolin and uh, Bill Faulkner doing international stuff with us that we support. We give a ton of money away uh, every year uh, just through cooperative program dollars that support these kinds of things. And, and we want to continue to support and to partner and to pursue. And really what it is is that we just want to be a people that live in a posture where we keep our eyes up and looking out for those needs. But it doesn't mean that those causes become our main thing. We're a church, and we can't do everything. And so it's why we look for people that, that are focused very strategically in certain areas. And one of the challenges that churches face in pursuing those things is making sure that we keep our main thing the main thing. And here's our main thing. It is to see people far from God come to know Christ. And we wholeheartedly are convinced that the very best way to do that is through the context of a community group. Being together with one another, walking alongside one another, arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, bringing in people in, inviting them in, finding ways that, that we can bring them into our homes and take them out and to serve them in, in different ways. Like that is what our mission is. And so we can partner with other things. And we can bless them and we can serve and we can help, but our main focus is the gospel of Jesus. And it is making sure that every tribe, nation, and tongue hears about the good news of him before he comes back and before he returns. Our work is immense before us. But praise be to God that he calls us and raises us up. And that's why he says you're blessed when you do those things. And so we work out of a relationship with him, out of a posture of identity that is rooted and that is found in him. I'm gonna invite our worship team up on stage.
I want to pray for us, and I want to give us a time to respond uh, to the Lord. Um, every head bowed and every eyes closed, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Christ is Lord, we believe in our heart that God raised him up from the dead, call upon his name and say, Jesus, would you save me from my sins? The Bible says you will be saved. There's no trick, no gimmick, no manipulation, no arm twisting. It's a recognition that I need Christ in my life. So if that's you today, I wanna encourage you. Would you, just, would you just say, God, would you save me right now? I call upon your name. God, would you save me through him and be saved? For the rest of you, we want to enter into a time of response and just asking God that our, our worship and song reflects the worship as we leave this place that God has sent us out to be on mission. Church, are you living on mission today? If not, let's go. Let's start now. And let's walk in the goodness of our God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you speak to us and challenge us. We pray that you would continue to do that. Help us not deviate from our own mission. Help us guard it carefully. We pray, God, that many would that are far from you would come to know you and your goodness. For we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said.